Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, it's a slow week in real baseball. We just had players weekend. We had a couple other things going on, but let's be honest, it's like late August, real dog days going on in the world right now. You know what that means when it's a slow week in real baseball? What does that mean? It's a hot week in the world of Phil Mushnick. Are you ready for the encore to the Phil Mushnick bad take reading? Are you ready to do this? I'm so ready for this. This is really one of my, I think, favorite recurring segments that we do. It's just kind of grounding, you know? It's like a palate cleanser for everything else. Phil Mushnick's bad columns are our anchor. Yes, exactly. Um, he all holds right. us down. <laughs> we uh, we were lucky enough to talk to Hannah Kaiser, a national baseball writer at Yahoo Sports, um, and that interview was coming up a little later in the episode. But we figured we'd uh, we'd hit listeners with the bread and butter right off the bat, leading into that interview. Since our our conversation with Hannah was actually intelligent, and this is just a stupid little thing we do. So, Alex, are you ready? I'm so ready. Before we do that, we should say uh, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And this is Tipping Pitches, if you didn't know. I never know what voice I should affect when I do this, when I'm reading Phil Mushnick or when I'm reading like a like a bad take column, Alex. I don't know if I should like stray like old and like out of it or if I should go like, I mean, with Mushnick, I mean, I probably should do that one. But with some of the people who I don't know what they look like, sometimes I feel as though I should be leaning into like the Ben Shapiro voice, which unfortunately <laughs> I know what that sounds like. Yeah. I feel like for a lot of like the the New York Post columns that we read or the your kind of run of the mill old man yells at cloud thing, it's it's really you have to take on the persona of the the old the old guy who's just sitting in his armchair in front of the TV and hasn't moved in like four hours and there's no one else in the room but he's just kind of like talking out loud and mm-hmm. and verbalizing these ideas to himself that he thinks are incredibly profound. We're really going hard on Phil Mushnick right now. Yeah, um, and I think we're about to go even harder on him. Well, sometimes we do this thing where we just start talking in a New York accent, and you're really bad at a New York ac- accent, so it's even funnier. <laughs> but sometimes we like depending on the publication, and the New York Post is one of them. We'll just do like a weird like. Francesa, like a like a evil version of Mike Francesa, although he's a little bit evil in his, in his own right, um, but like a more sinister version of that. So I don't really know what Phil Mushnick sounds like, but with eyes towards that beautiful picture that you've painted for us and for the listener, we are going to get started. The headline is <laughs> Gary Sanchez doesn't know a thing about baseball. okay all right now we're starting off strong here let's lend phil mushnick maybe a a bit a little bit of rope on this one it's possible that gary sanchez doesn't know a thing about (laughs) baseball we're putting aside the fact that he is a major league baseball player but we don't know where our buddy phil is going with this we're putting that aside (laughs) well that's pretty much what our guy does okay maybe okay charitable interpretation hour here we go 
Gary Sanchez doesn't need to know anything about baseball because he's so naturally talented and so naturally gifted that he just goes out there, Alex, and he just takes it one pitch at a time. He's just trying to get get better every day. How about that? Yeah, I don't know how to do a podcast, but here I am every week. I mean, that's not facetious. We don't know how to do a podcast, but here we are every week. I I wasn't kidding. <laughs> okay. All right, let's get to the article. In 60 years of watching baseball, it took until Thursday night to finally put my wrinkly cricket index finger on it. Good visual. I realized what has been right in front of me the past five seasons. Yankees catcher Gary Sanchez, a two-time All-Star, knows almost nothing, nothing about how to play baseball. He has to know, right? He has to know that, like, Gary Sanchez is the most hot-button issue when it comes to, like, New York commentators about baseball. This is all, like, with a mind towards understanding what kind of reaction he's going to get, right? Or do you think he's so far in his, like, weird... 30 years of New York baseball writing silo that he doesn't even understand that you and I are going to be affected by this column. I I have to think that this is written almost purely for clicks. Yeah. <laughs> if we're being completely honest with ourselves, I don't know that there's anyone who's like, "Oh, let me see if uh let me see if Phil can actually prove his point here. He may have something. He may have uh, he may have, he may have latched onto something. He may convince uh, me that Gary Sanchez doesn't know what a full count means. He knows yeah, almost exactly. nothing about baseball. And you know what? Let's give Phil a little bit of credit because here we are reading his article, <laughs> broadcasting it to all our listeners. So maybe he really won. It seems as if several times per game, he shows himself to be totally unfamiliar with the sport, beyond swinging as hard as he can to try to hit home runs. Everything else either throws him or escapes him. You see that double entendre either throws him because you throw in baseball. Mm. It's a little clever writing right there for you. A little, <laughs> little column writing 101, huh? <laughs> Thursday against the A's in Oakland, Sanchez led off the second with an oops line drive single. I don't... What's the oops here? I, I think the way that I read it is that he always tries to hit home runs. And so oh. when he gets a single, it's like an oopsie-daisy, didn't mean to do that. See, that's the correct reading. But you, you really have to be like operating on a higher level to understand that. <laughs> Good work. I would have read it as like a like an oops. He doesn't know anything about baseball, but somehow he stumbled into a single. <laughs> the next batter, Brett Gardner. <laughs> He's checking all the boxes. Touting Brett Gardner. Hit a hard grounder to first. The ball's first bounce was immediate, just a few feet beyond the plate. Yet Sanchez was seen running towards second at a minimized pace because he was looking back towards first. What did he expect to see at or near first? I don't know. A pink flamingo? Mm, The plot thickens. (laughs) I need someone who was at this game to call in, to DM us, to email us. Was there a pink flamingo on the field at the time? Because that could really change everything. I just don't get... There's no... That doesn't mean anything. A pink flamingo? Nope. Also, aren't all flamingos pink? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If he wanted to see a force play on Gardner, he did. But why he didn't head directly towards second on a ground ball was more hard evidence that Sanchez doesn't know enough about baseball to know how it should be played. With the throw from first now headed towards second, Sanchez only needed to slide to beat that throw it would be high and wide as the force was no longer in play. But Sanchez awkwardly pulled into second, standing, then trying to elude the tag, fell off balance, 
then off the bag before he was tagged out to complete a double play. Even by today's diminished skills and standards, this was a double play that appeared as the residual of Sanchez. Yet again, failing to recognize or practice elementary remedial common sense baseball. So this par- this is a wild paragraph because it starts taking a dig at every baseball player and ends I, using that dig to take a further dig at the remedial, quote, remedial skills of Gary Sanchez. Can I just say, just to put everything into perspective really quick, Gary Sanchez, best catcher in baseball? It's quite possible. <laughs> <laughs> the catcher, the most intelligent and knowledgeable position, uh, the position that leads to the most managers and uh, the position that requires you to be involved in every single pitch of every single game. Uh, when your team's on the field. And also, Gary Sanchez, a a very good hitter, a very good power hitter in this era of power hitters. And um, we're using this column, this platform, to call him remedial. I, I like the idea that he just said that baseball in today's day and age has diminished skills. Like, every baseball player wouldn't just totally wreck, like, the 1930 Yankees or something like that. I'm I'm so confused what he's referring to now. Is it just because players strike out more? Like, does has he seen velocity trends? Has, has he seen, like, home run trends? I This is just willful ignorance to absolutely anything that has transpired in baseball over the last, like, 50 years. It's really, it's a really inspired reading of the game, if we're being honest. I saw someone the other day, like, make some crazy claim that, like, Babe Ruth would have a a negative WRC plus in, like, double A in 2019. (laughs) Or, like, any time past 1980. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Should I I close it out? Or should I just, uh, or do people get the idea? What do you think? Uh, oh, is there more? Oh, look at that. There's more. I feel like the, <laughs> the thing about this article is that the rest of it is still kind of based off this one play, right? Like the majority of this article is just him describing a single play that happened. And then Phil is like, well, this tells me, using my um, Power data deduction. science background, um, this <laughs> one event tells me that Gary Sanchez knows absolutely nothing about baseball. Yeah. Let's not take into account the fact that he calls every pitch that every Yankees pitcher throws. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I I really would like to know what Phil Mushnick's uh, obsession is with Gary Sanchez. I mean, I, I feel like I have an inkling of what's going on in there and why Gary Sanchez draws so much of his ire. But this is not the first column that has focused solely on on Gary Sanchez and alluded to him being lazy or careless or not good at baseball. Like it really is. It's just turning up like the, the racist columnist baseball columnist trope meter to like 13, like Mm -hmm. as high as it can go. Yeah. Okay. Here's the kicker. Sanchez plays his position as if under a spell, a fog that fills him with indifference. He runs the bases. Here's the thing. This, the uh, the imagery, man. He's really getting after it. He's putting those skills to waste <laughs> on bad takes. <laughs> a fog that fills him with indifference. He could have been the next great American novelist. Uh, he runs the bases when he's in the mood, as if he's lost beyond anything more challenging or thought-worthy than a home run trot. But to pretend that we can't see or recognize when players are the victims of their own deficiencies, not the victims of superior plays by opponents, is insulting to viewers who know and deserve better. 
So uh, you heard it here first. Phil Mushnick knows and deserves better than what Gary Sanchez, all-star catcher, potentially the best catcher in the league, is giving him. <laughs> um, I would say this to Phil, and that is that I would like to see Phil Mushnick go and catch a nine-inning baseball game uh, and maybe hit a home run if he gets a chance, if he gets around to it, you know? And uh, and then just get back to us, just kind of on on that idea of knowing about baseball. I'm kind of curious what sort of perspective that might lend him. Yeah, I'd love to see Phil Mushnick try to internalize the Yankees data that they give to Gary Sanchez about pitch sequencing and game theory and uh, pitcher pitch usage throughout the course of a nine inning baseball game and third time through the order, which pitches work better. All these different things that Gary Sanchez has to think about and does really well because Gary Sanchez is a good defensive catcher, despite the fact that a couple pass balls have made the lazy baseball public feel like he's not. Um, and then maybe you get back to us. You're right. I'll, I'll take that. I was watching a, a game the other day and thinking about how I could not catch one pitch. Just not even one. Zero pitches. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I was watching a, a Mets game and a foul ball went back um, off Wilson Ramos's forearm. And so there was like a little delay in the game and his glove fell off. And then like the the thumb support thing that a lot of catchers use inside of the glove to make sure that they don't break their thumb catching a literal 100 mile an hour projectile. Um, and it made me realize just about how if I was a catcher, how easily mentally I could get to the place where if I missed one pitch, I would just never be able to catch any pitch after that again. Like how easily I could get the catcher yips because you're thinking about how fast the ball is coming at you and how hard it is to catch it and how I would just never catch any of them. Yeah, yeah. The the yips are something that sound very fake until you think about it long enough and you're like, I would do the exact same thing. I yep. would forget to throw how to, ba- how to throw a baseball every single time. I'd be like, I'd throw it into the, into the third base bleachers <laughs> while aiming for first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll have Hannah Kaiser on the line. Okay, it's been quite a while since we've had a guest, and we have a good one this week. Uh, we are joined on the line, Alex, by Hannah Kaiser, uh, national, single, singular word, national, not nationals, baseball writer for Yahoo Sports and uh, host of The Bandwagon. Does it have a the on the beginning of it? It does. This was a source of much consternation <laughs> um, when we when we launched the show because my uh, my producers rightly, they correctly argued that you never want to, de- like nothing good ever has the definite article. There's, you know, I, the, the scene from the social yeah. network was qu- quoted, quoted a lot. Um, and I argued for the definite article and sometimes I regret that. I just think it's super weird to say bandwagon this week on bandwagon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very strange. So <laughs> for my own sake, yes, it's the bandwagon. So that's a small window into the ideation behind the bandwagon. But okay, I wanted to start off with kind of a basic question about that because Alex and I are big fans of the show and I think the ethos of it is kind of something that we strive for in this podcast. Um, So when was it conceptualized and like how many people were part of that process and how long does it take to go from idea to 
doing your first pilots to then the form that it's in now? Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, this is so much fun. Nobody ever asks me about it, and I love talking about process. <laughs> um, I had I was interested in video, so sort of when I was interviewing at Yahoo, they they asked if I wanted to do video stuff, and I said I did. Um, and I I very much wanted the idea of having some sort of franchise or like a vehicle like that. Um, and my very good producers, uh, I don't know, they're not going to listen to this, but Matt Collette, uh, Tim Hines, Ron Schiltz. Uh, when I started, they sat me down and they very smartly, I, I, they, I had never worked with like fantastic producers who work on shows like that. Um, and they were just sort of like, how do you watch baseball? So we like literally just got in a room and they were like, tell me about a game. When you watch a game, what stands out? Like, and, um, something that was really important to me was this idea of, I knew that I was going to be writing about more serious topics um, I wanted to cover sort of labor stuff, um, and I, I I tend to come at um, the work that I do in writing and reporting from a sort of skeptical standpoint. And so I was very clear that I wanted to do something positive. I was like, I think I want. <laughs> I was like, I want. I want to people to not think that I hate this sport. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm probably going to, I often, and, and I, I wonder, I'm curious if I guess you guys feel this way or other people who write about baseball feel this way or any sport that it often feels like what you are doing is sort of pointing out the ways in which the front offices are corrupt or the commissioner's office seems like they've never watched a game or whatever it is. And I wanted, and I sort of said, I want to do something what is that I, I that that indicates that I actually do actually enjoy watching baseball um yeah and somehow through the course of this conversation we got I think that they were they probably literally were just like oh you know who are you a fan of and I said well I grew up a Phillies fan but I shamelessly bandwagoned the Giants in their 2012 run um and then I kind of picked up the Yankees in 2016 and 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 we were talking about that and then I was like oh yeah and they were like well that's so weird that like you love baseball but you don't have a dedicated fandom and shared the idea that sort of became the whole ethos of the show which is that like that is a fun way to experience the game and that I think um I, I think about it as almost being in juxtaposition to the like Bill Simmons model, which was supposed to be like, oh, sports writers don't have to be impartial because impar- impartiality is sort of impossible. And everybody who loves sports enough to go into it must have grown up loving some team or another. For me, I think I sort of felt like, well, yeah, but I grew up loving some team or another. And then I became a sports writer. And and what was fun about becoming a sports writer was realizing that like, wow, everybody's team is exciting. And like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's everything is it's it also fits into probably this like larger we don't have time for this existential belief that I have in like, I'm very interested in cultural relativity. And I, I was an ancient history major in college. And I'm from like a philosophical standpoint, very interested in like, um, if your life experiences were different, how would you view the world differently? And I think yeah. that that's an interesting perspective to come at sports with. I also just think that I don't, I don't have a natural, I don't, the diehard fandom is very almost foreign to me. I don't, I don't do the like live and die by your team, but I love baseball. And I think, um, trying on fandoms is a fun way for me to try to like understand that from an almost like ethnographic sociological standpoint of like, how come I don't do that? Like, how come I don't have this sort of like, I grew up in Philly and I don't have like this, you know, 
I don't have any Eagles tattoo or whatever. Like I don't, I don't live and die by it, but I do love the game. And I think trying to understand that for myself while also looking at what's fun. That was a really long winded answer about how we got. This is also five minutes into this interview and we've already gotten more existential, I think, than we've ever gotten on this podcast. (laughs) I really love it. I've thought about my own mortality multiple times now, so we're off to a good start. (laughs) A couple of things that you said in there. Well, number one, the Eagles tattoo thing. I was just back home in Philly this this past weekend, and the first thing that you see when you get off any flight to Philadelphia is some dude with a backwards Phillies hat and an Eagles tattoo on his forearm. But second, um, I think so- something that you hit on uh, just that really like meta idea of becoming a sports commentator or sports writer or whatever, and sort of like falling into the trap of cynicism porn almost in a way like you want to pick out all of the flaws because it it makes you feel like you're impartial or you're um being honest about the sport right if you can point out its flaws and and alex and i have had quite a few meta conversations about what's that what that's done to our fan brains like our human brains yeah it's good to have a backlash to that backlash and the the idea of the bandwagon is like to me, at least while watching it is like, yeah, we don't always have to be like super negative about these things. We can find like silver linings. Yeah. And I think for me also, um, one of the things that I was, that I was pretty adamant about when I joined Yahoo, uh, was that I wanted to cover fandom. I, I, sometimes when I tell people, people will say, what do you, what do you write about? Because I don't write a lot about like on field strategy type stuff. And I usually will say that I, I cover labor or I cover the cultural impact of sports and I cover fandom. I like, I think that a one with the the way that I have best found to combat that cynicism that comes about from sports reporting is to be like genuinely curious about the fan experience. I think that that's something this is going to be negative about sports reporters and I don't mean to lump them all together, but I do think that there is a way in which sports reporters tend to get a little bit derisive about fans and think like, well, if you knew as much as I did, you would whatever feel impartial or, or this, that, or the other thing. And I, I wanted to, uh, take fandom seriously. I often say that like all of sports is fake except for the fandom. Like <laughs> the only thing that actually matters in the world is the fact that all these people care about this thing that is ultimately fake and arbitrary. And that to me is like incredibly deserving of coverage. It's just this sort of general idea that people have like collectively decided something should sort of almost govern their lives or whatever it is. And that, and that, that is worth considering and taking seriously. And that like, and trying to understand different fan bases and trying to apply, like trying to imagine being a fan of that team. I don't know. I, I, I would, Oh, this is going to sound very preachy, but like, Oh, I encourage people to do that. If you cover, if you cover the team and you're like, this team sucks, why does anyone like it? Like try to imagine that you grew up there. What would they like about it? Because they do. Like, people like every team. Something that your show makes me think about a lot is just this, like, concept of, like, the bandwagon fan, right? And that's, like, a very controversial idea in sports because... um, because people like to feel special and they like to feel that it's ex- that their their fandom is exclusive. So if I'm an A's fan and and someone who just moved to the Bay Area starts rooting for the A's, I might like keep them at arm's length and be like, "Well, you haven't you haven't been at this uh been in this as much as I have, right? Like you haven't suffered through the years or whatever." But I, I it's a very exclusionary 
thing for sports fans to do. And I, I, I agree with your idea that it, it should almost be like a sports, especially baseball, which is already very regional. It can be consumed almost like a buffet where you can like pick and choose. And each week you can like, you can like bounce around and check in on what the Phillies and Bryce Harper are doing because I never watch the Phillies or Bryce Harper, but his hair is great and they're a very fun team. I, I think that kind of trying to open up those pathways um, to those different regions, those different teams is a really good uh, model to follow. Yeah, I have um, a little bit of a joke, which is that like it's a show about baseball that's secretly attempting to convince people that like a lot of the way that we experience all sorts of cultural phenomenons is probably rooted in like a little bit of sexism. And and I actually think that like the sort of the idea of a diehard fan is and uh, our our CEO at Yahoo said something to me in the interview process, um, which was like he was. Uh, said something flattering about Barstool and he was like, I know they're problematic, but you know, is fandom inherently misogynistic? And I was like, Ooh, we should explore that. Cause it might be. <laughs> uh, but right. I, I think that like, well, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we think of as sort of being, and, and I think this is true um, on field, the idea of right in baseball, la- like uh, there's backlash to the unwritten rules. And then there's, there's unwritten rules in fandom. And a lot of the unwritten rules in fandom are sort of pegged this idea of like needing to prove your bona fides. And that like, if someone doesn't seem like a fan, you should challenge them to, to prove right. How long they've suffered or whatever it is. Um, but I watch a lot of Bryce Harper actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you for that at all. So we talked a little bit about like kind of coming at it from like a maybe anthropological perspective, but was there ever a part of you that was like, oh man, this is tough to like take the Phillies hat off and put on a different hat on camera in front of all these people to see? I mean, Philadelphia fans are a notoriously unforgiving yeah. and um, not accepting fan base. So did you ever have second thoughts about that? Um, I didn't have second thoughts about that. I did. Uh, we did the, the Phillies episode was the most recent episode that came out and, uh, it was the easiest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this week, spoiler, this week we did the Dodgers and at the end of doing the episode, I was like, you know, I don't really like the Dodgers. (laughs) I was like, I was like, we've been kind of avoiding them. And eventually they're, they're just like too good. We had to talk about them. We were running out of really good teams. Um, and then at the end I was like, why do I hate the Dodgers so much? And my producers were like, it's because you love the Giants. And I was like, that's true. Um, So I think there are certain teams, like when we sort of, when we started this, we were counting out the weeks and talking about, should we ever repeat teams or whatever it is? Um, And I was like, well, we're never doing the Cardinals, obviously. And they were like, why? Why obviously? I was like, because I hate the Cardinals. Who would bandwagon the Cardinals? So it's more that there there are some teams that I like have this emotional sense about, even though I don't really know why the flip, the flip side of that is the reds were the second team that we bandwagoned. And I, uh, this is like a bad thing for me to admit as a national baseball writer had never thought about the reds. I don't know. It doesn't (laughs) doesn't come up, never thought about the reds and like the reds are the bandwagon that has stuck with me the most. Like I still, I will sometimes find myself, like watching a Reds game and I'll be like, man, you know, they really are fun for a bad team. I'm like, yeah, they are. I follow Amir Garrett on Instagram now. He's great. <laughs> like, it's just like, like a lot of, that was one where, that was one where it, it 
actually worked to be like, why do people root for this team that I've never thought about? And then I like came up with all these reasons and I was like, oh yeah, no, I see it. I totally see how you could like root for this team and want them to be good, even though they kind of aren't right now. Alex and I did a thing in this off season where we decided to kind of like expand the purview of our podcast by basically doing a smaller version of what you do every week and that we drafted or we like a, a lot did a lottery just, like, like a random number selected. generator <laughs> of uh all of the 30 teams in baseball to see who would be our our like second team um and I got the Giants and he got the Twins which was a, a win for him and a loss for me yeah. but I got the Giants and I was like you know what? Like similar to how you're saying about the Dodgers, it was like I don't really, I don't really like this team. Like the couple players rubbed me the wrong way, and who um, rubbed you the wrong they, way? Uh, <laughs> oh yes, I'm so here for this. <laughs> <laughs> Hashing it out about Madison Bumgarner on a podcast. Oh, well, no, that's so, fair. <laughs> well, I'm a Mets fan, um, okay. so the wild card game from 2016 hasn't quite left my uh, emotional core yet. That so was it was the best sporting event I've ever been at. I, I, I great. like totally as a fan. Bought tickets. I don't have any hookup at that point. Um, and it was amazing. I bought like standing room only seats or standing room only tickets. And it was the far and away like the best. And I'm anti one game wildcard playoff too, but that was incredible. It was a really good game. Uh, Alex and I had like a work obligation to be at at the time. And we were like trying to follow it underneath this. It was like a dinner. We're trying to follow it underneath the table on our phones and getting kind of like weirdly chastised by like NYU administration and then we like ran back to our office to watch this game and I like pulled off like my formal clothes to reveal like a like a Noah Syndergaard jersey or whatever um well as if you've been following along I don't expect people to know my Twitter that well Uh, my mom has my mom is a big Mets fan and she's been begging me every week to bandwagon the Mets and so we are not just to see how crazy (laughs) we can (laughs) um I I've 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 tweeted, I hate referencing my own Twitter feed, but I've, I've tweeted about it because she texts me about it constantly. Um, and my mom is a huge Mets fan and my grandmother, her mother is an even bigger Mets fan. So at some point we will, we will bandwagon the Mets and I will figure out some way to include them in the experience. Alex's mom is like tipping pitches listener number one. So she often also has feedback on what we do and do not cover. So yeah, relatable. Uh, well, I tell her if you're listening, uh, listen to the Mets episode. It'll it'll be forthcoming at some point, I think, if they stay good. I, I was going to ask kind of if there was a favorite team that you had bandwagoned so far, but you mentioned the the Reds. Have there been any, I know that like you kind of take this like a week at a time. Have there been any like particularly um, jarring moments that you've dropped in on or like weird things that have happened to like bubble up right as you donned like the like the Royals had or whatever? Such a good question. I'm going to, here's the problem. I'm going to like answer with the Reds thing again, which is the opposite, which is that since then I've been like, man, the Reds, like they keep doing things that I'm like, Oh, we totally, we should bandwagon this week. And I'm like, we already already did that. (laughs) Or, you know what actually even better is the, the Yankees, the Yankees were our first episode. We bandwagon the Yankees. And since then, there have been all these times where I've been like, oh, we sh- the Yankees, man, are playing so well. And like, there's been a lot of that where like, I either feel prescient or I get frustrated with myself because <laughs> I'll be like, oh, yeah, like the, Yan- I mean, the Yankees are in particular where it's like we bandwagoned them in like April and it was like, oh, oh wow, the, Yan- the, the, Yan- the Yankees playing pretty well considering all their injuries. Um, and then that, that narrative has, has, 
grown so much that I'm almost like, wow, we had no idea like the extent to which, like, I think in that episode, I said something about how like, uh, you know, we talked about the John Sterling home run calls. And I think I said something about like, John Sterling is never going to remember these guys' names after the all-star break or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not true. He, he still has to talk about Gio <laughs> Urshela all the time. Um, so that was one in which I, I almost wish that like, I wish that we hadn't done it on the cusp of that story, that we had almost like let that story marinate a little bit longer um, because there's there's like, you could, you could fill an even longer episode with um, talking about how, how well the Yankees have played despite all their injuries this year. If we had waited even longer, um, we did the Phillies in our pilot episode and the fake pilot that we didn't release, which was like the sort of first week of the baseball season. And because I'm from Philly, we were, we did like a, like a fake test episode, just like sitting in a conference room at the office and filmed it so we could like watch it back. And we talked about the Phillies and it was so much fun. I had so much fun with it. And then they just like, like months waiting for them to be like, just as good. Like, cause that first, remember that first week of the baseball season when like they went back to DC and Harper hit those home runs against the nationals. And I was like, hell yeah. And like all had tons of content for a fake pilot. And then like, I had just been slow at all. That not as mm-hmm. good. That was, that was really the highlight of their season. So I know you should have fired at that point. No, uh, I've been doing this thing on the MLB show, um, which was like an idea passed down to me. And I've been like trying to figure out how to make it work, which is like basically the opposite of what you're doing, which is it's called why I hate my team. And we bring on like ringer staffers and they talk about what they're most frustrated about with their team this specific week or like this specific season in general. And we brought so so it can work in the the other direction because I brought on Michael Bauman to talk about. Um, what he was frustrated about with the Phillies this year. This was a couple weeks ago, or like I think like a, a week and a half ago. And uh, the the Bryce Harper grant we had taped it in advance, a couple days in advance, and it was scheduled to run on Friday morning. And then the Bryce Harper walk off grand slam sprint around the bases, which is like the feel good moment of the baseball season in general, yeah. not even just for Phillies fans, happened the night before it released. And I was like, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I can't control what happens here. That part is hard. So like. We tape on Mondays because there's the fewest number of games on Monday night. And so it's like the least we tape on Mondays and it comes out on Wednesdays. Uh, and still that's like 20 games happen between when we, tape. Yeah, <laughs> like the hardest part of covering baseball is definitely how much baseball there is. There's so much baseball. The churn. Yeah. Um, so, I, so moving on a little bit from the bandwagon, but kind of like something for your personal process, you mentioned how you, the idea of the bandwagon was kind of rooted in the idea that you wanted to cover something a little more positive and your writing skews a little bit more towards like the serious issues, um, like labor and things like that. How do you, do you ever get like whiplash from alternating back and forth between those pendulums? And how do you kind of like activate a different part of your brain when you have to get in front of the computer and actually start typing? Uh, I'm pretty useless in the afternoon on Mondays. <laughs> because we film Monday morning and I find that it like, I do right. I find that it is like such a high energy thing to then be like, okay, so then where were we with like, whatever? Yeah. Um, that, that, that is like a tricky, I don't have to write a ton. I'm very, very lucky. I have a very good job. Um, they don't like demand that I turn in a certain amount of stories. And so I, I kind of just take my time transitioning back. Um, but it is a little, it is a little, 
tricky. It's more, it's, it's, it is harder, I think, to go from a writing mindset into the bandwagon mindset. I think it's like, interesting because it's, I find that the bandwagoning, I'm sort of like, oh yeah, great. That's like all this stuff about that team. And now I know a ton about that team and I find it, it's a great trick. If you're uh, if you're new, if you're like, if you're in your first year as a national baseball writer, I recommend coming up with a recurring bit that requires you to like read up on one team heavily per week. Um, Cause then you kind of learn them all, but it, it's tough sometimes to go from whatever I'm writing about to like, I find that it takes me like a full day of, okay, so I, we tape on Monday. So I'll spend that weekend just watching that team. And I, I read like, I see what the ringer has written about them. And I see like what the athletic has written about them. And I like read all this. And then I need to like, still take another 24 hours to just be like, okay, so these are the players. This is the team. This is what they've been up to. <laughs> like, let me like now again, like this is sort of cheesy, but like, imagine I cared about all these people and I've been caring about them for years. Like, what would I, that it, like, it takes a lot of time to do that. And then, and then coming back is just like getting, being like, just pulling up your notes and being like, Oh, right. Most things are still terrible. <laughs> yeah whose jersey would i want to own like which person would i be yelling at who's when they're coming in from the bullpen or which person would i be dreading when they're coming in from the bullpen yeah um all right i wanted to ask specifically about your uh 1994 strike story about the fans who um who never came back yeah um it it so it talks about uh, the potential boycott of baseball that went on at the time and there were like columnists um who were like pushing for that which is uh, patently absurd thing to do yeah um but uh you know how playing in front of empty fans this idea that playing in front of empty fans would show players what it was like to feel abandoned which is how fans felt at the time um i think obviously now it's pretty agreed upon that there's a little more pro player sentiment or there's at least more avenues for people to share their pro player sentiment than ever and i think anti-owner sentiment is maybe at an all-time high but i I'm probably not an authority on that because I wasn't alive for the history of baseball. Um, But so in your reporting, like, did you, did you ever get the sense that there was enough pro players? So there's like enough pro player sentiment out there in the world now that if the, if another strike were to happen in the near future, which we hope that it doesn't, or we hope that it doesn't actually affect the season itself. Like, would there be the, uh, just a repeat of the same animosity or have we actually come far enough? Should we have some optimism? Uh, so, okay, this is such a good question because I grappled this. That's too strong a word. My reporting isn't that important. I, <laughs> I internally struggled with whether or not I actually wanted to write this piece because I was worried that it came off as like justifying this idea of like, players got to play for the good of the game type thing. Cause I didn't want it to come off as like, I didn't want to come off. It to seem as like an implicit threat that like, Oh man, if players go on strike, they'll lose the fans. Um, which uh, ultimately I decided that that probably doesn't apply because we'd never get a strike again because the owners would lock them out before a strike ever happened. Um, they would never allow, they would, I don't, owners would never allow a season to start without a CBA. Um, so that's more of an owner problem than a player problem. But to answer your actual question, uh, hmm, I think you would lose some people. I do. I think I think that uh, – so for that reporting, I became a member of the Facebook group uh, that doesn't acknowledge baseball after 1993. 
which is a weird, it's a, it's a trip. I have not left that. I can imagine. I have not left that Facebook group because it is so interesting. <laughs> uh, it has, I'm, I'm, I am, I am pulling it up. It has like 27,000 members or something like that. Like it's, it has 29,030 members, 29,000 members in this group that is baseball 19, 18, sorry, baseball 1857 through 1993. Um, and it is fascinating in some ways and in other ways, a little bit depressing about the fact that like, so you talk about how like, it feels like there's never been more anti-owner sentiment and how people have more avenues to express their sort of pro labor, pro player stance. And I, I do, I love that. I notice it. I'm on Twitter. Um, and I sometimes think that that may blind us to the fact that yeah. the 29,000 people who still get their news from places like Facebook uh, feel very strongly that, in fact, the owners and the players are colluding, or maybe colluding is the wrong word because it has a little a legal... Very loaded. That's very, that the owners and the players are equally to blame for how greed-focused the game is now. That is, mm. that is the sort of surprising, I think, the sort of like, okay, within baseball media and especially within baseball Twitter, there is a very strong sense of like, are you pro player? Or are you pro owner? And what that reporting for that story, and it's particularly talking to people in that Facebook group, introduced me to was this idea of like, oh no, most people are just like, fuck them both. Owners and players are also greedy and it's ruining the game for the little guy, which is the fan. Yeah. Um, I worry that like if we were to get a strike now, particularly, I mean, people I spoke to, uh, you like in, in talking to them about 1994, people bring up Bryce Harper's contract or the steroid era. There is this idea that like actually baseball players and baseball owners are the elites who are laughing at us and getting rich off each other. This sort of like, all right, I'm trying to not say collusion again, but this idea of like <laughs> fans, I think had this idea of like, how could they not get along when they're all making so much money? Yeah. And, and that's like, I, when you like phrase it like that, the part of me is like, yeah, <laughs> why, like, why, why can't they? And there's, there's such a, um, I mean, I think the average baseball fan, most baseball fans, myself included, it's very hard to view those terms through like specifically labor just because everything watching the game, it's all so diluted and you're just kind of so drawn into talking about the $300 million contract that Bryce Harper isn't living up to and the way that the, I think the media has the national media, I think, for the last few decades has kind of shaped that conversation, has almost pushed fans into that corner, right? Of being like, well, these are the these are the people who uh who I guess we're up against. And I, I think that it's it it makes me think of like kind of the reaction to Andrew Luck retiring the other day, right? And yeah. how a lot of fans were really all upset. the hot button issues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because a lot of fans feel like they're like I think owed something to some extent, right? Like these 162 games or four, or 16 games or however, however many. Um, and I, there's a, there's a strange sense of 
entitlement among sports fans that I am a part of. I'm not trying to diss sports fans, but I do think it's interesting how it manifests itself when all these things come to a head. I, I, right. I think again, this gets back to like, I try to, I try to report and I try to write and do whatever from, from a perspective of like, the fan is not the bad guy. And I, I like, it's tough because I think to me, the idea of like, Oh, the players make so much money, aren't they? Like, I also, I see the flaws in that and I'm very much a part of the whatever, like pro labor baseball Twitter that, that would dunk on someone if they wrote a column saying that. But at the same time, right, like it does kind of make sense when you see it from the standpoint of people who are like, I, I, this was the kicker of that piece, but like, those people are right in realizing that fan, that players and owners don't really care about them. Like they are, they are correct to realize that. Like that is the kind of shitty thing about covering baseball is realizing that like there is a little bit of a derision for fans <laughs> and that like, yeah. and that like becoming an adult in some, like it is almost weird to retain your sports fandom when you become an adult and to that like both, both in, in from both perspectives, both to sort of act like some other adult human being with autonomy owes you something that's wrong. You shouldn't feel that way, but also to kind of realize that you're the sucker for thinking he does owe you something that like, it's no fun to do that either. It's no fun to be like, wait a minute, he doesn't owe me anything. And I sort of, uh, I in like support his million dollar lifestyle by feeling like he owes me something and the only option is to decide that he doesn't. But in doing so, I kind of opt out of the experience entirely. Like that is a bizarre juxtaposition that we put sports fans in is to sort of like, you got to buy in all the time to thinking that like these people do that you do have some sort of symbiotic relationship with these people and being forced to realize that you don't like that's good and healthy and you should realize that you don't. But also, it makes you kind of be like, "Oh, never mind. I don't know why I do any of this at all." Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of the reason why, like, it's so noteworthy when teams and not not necessarily players, but organizations, franchises, owners make choices that actually do benefit fans. Like, you know, you wrote a piece about the um, the Red Sox twelve minute game, and I think, like, wholeheartedly, that is actually just a good moment for fans. It, it's like price adjusted for families. And for younger people and the concessions are a lot cheaper. And that's something that we talk a lot about is that like the accessibility of it doesn't benefit fans at all, but in the long run does benefit owners and players, even if it's benefiting owners and players in an unequal way. And so it's like they are in this weird juxtaposition where it's like, all right, well, I mean, maybe players are getting a raw deal as it's compared to um, owners and like these billionaires and whatnot, and we should care about that as people who chronicle the game. But also, like, I shouldn't pay twenty dollars for like a Bud Light at Dodger Stadium. Right, right. I think, and I think that I think it is. Imp- I would, I would again. This is the same. This is the same uh, preaching. But like, yeah, if you're a baseball writer, consider that like that that none of this world exists without people buying in and so like the accessibility for people to buy in is in some ways like significantly more important to the long-term health of the game than like the actual on-field or even labor issues <laughs> like yeah. people continuing to care is the thing that will that will keep everybody who covers and works in and around baseball employed yeah 
being in uh, being in weird baseball Facebook groups is a really eye opening experience. When um when we started this podcast, we were still in college and we were trying to find ways to like grow it outside of the sphere of the NYU radio station or whatever. And so I like randomly on a whim at like 4 a.m. one night when I like couldn't sleep or just was choosing not to sleep, I just went and joined all of these like most popular Facebook pages and you had to like basically apply to get into some of them and like say why you wanted to be in in them and and all these like weird threads were on them and stuff. You know, these are the type of places that when uh, when the Indians rightfully decided to get rid of Chief Wahoo, there are people like, I'm protesting the Indians now. And um, what, yeah, it's, it is. What you're describing is very true. It's, it's an eye-opening experience to see baseball fans that are outside of your Twitter circle. What's the weirdest one that you're in? Um, I got kicked out of one. Oh, so really? I guess that might be the weirdest one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah it tell was, us about that. It was called... Um, for the love of baseball and baseball was in all caps. So it was really more like for the love of baseball. But, um, I think I got kicked out for like, uh, maybe I posted our, we did a, Alex and I did a, um, a dramatic reading, making fun of all of the people posting about Chief Wahoo and how it was like ruining their personal lives, even though they were like Padres fans or whatever. And, uh, I think I may have posted the link to that podcast in there. So maybe the, the commissioner of the group or whatever, saw that and kicked me out of it. Yeah, that's weird. Um, I'm going to hang out in this one. They have actually great story ideas. It's like, it's like delightfully earnest. And it's like people just like being like, remember this guy. It's like, really, it's like a long episode of remember some guys. Uh, (laughs) Throwback to Deadspin days. That's pretty, that's pretty much how this podcast started. I, I think that's like really what most fans default to, right? Just especially watching baseball. It's so easy to just be like, Hey, remember, uh, remember Rob Nen? He was a, he was a pitcher. <laughs> and that's what this podcast was for like 20 straight episodes before. we just, <laughs> That's what it would be if we had to do sports talk radio, like drive yeah. time. Yeah. Th- like how else would you fill three hours, you know? And how else do these people fill their time scrolling on Facebook for like six hours a day? There's not right. that many people posting like baby pictures. You like start to have to delve into like weird niche groups and stuff. Yeah, Facebook groups are, I think, like the key to like many good trend pieces that are awaiting being written. Uh, it is my it is my dream to get into the uh, current and former Major League Baseball players Facebook group. I have I have seen it. Someone has let me look at their phone while it was open, and I aspire to be a member. Um, I'm sure that that is full of very very niche story ideas. <laughs> That's like the white whale. I don't even think I knew that that existed. <laughs> it does. It exists. Um, yeah, I really want to be a part of that. <laughs> um, so you have been you've been gracious enough to hang around for a while, um, and so we don't want to keep you too much longer. But I did just kind of want to chat about this weekend in baseball, which was uh, Players Weekend, and it's this really fascinating concept that I feel like could only ever happen in baseball where you have an entire weekend that's just like dedicated to letting the players like showcase their personality. And it's just such a funny concept to me, but I, I needed your takes on the uniforms because I I know that lots of people were incredibly divided about this. And were they (laughs) divided? Did anybody like them? So we, we, we did talk about this on the episode we taped today and I was like, man, I wish that I had the contrarian take and that I was like, well, actually, they're delightful. They're not. They're bad. They're bad. They look like, they look like 
pajamas is what they, yeah. they look like. They're all in their jammies because they're wearing the same color top to bottom. Um, and it's just, okay. Correct me if I'm wrong. In previous iterations of players weekend, every team didn't wear the same Jersey, right? Like they had some sort of like unique branding that, that indicated it was players weekend, but they still wore the Mets wore blue and red, whatever they wore their team colors. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. It feels almost like a spoof or a farce that <laughs> MLB was like, or like a, like an, like a troll of the players that MLB in an effort to highlight the individual personalities of players, they rendered them all literally chess piece like and indistinguishable from one another because it really felt like it highlighted the fact that like, I, I do this for a living and I cover a lot of baseball, but there's like 1200 baseball players on the 40 man rosters. And <laughs> this past weekend I would like turn on MLB network and they would be showing some highlight and I couldn't read their names and I couldn't even tell what team they were on. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I do not know which white man with a little bit of scruff that was that just hit a home run. <laughs> like it actually made it, it undermined, like it was, it was, it was like unplayers weekend actually, because I yeah. found it like genuinely more difficult to, to follow what was happening. If you were to kind of like perfectly fine, if you're watching only one team and you only get the sort of like regional sports network and you're like, yeah, that's my team. But like, if you were a person who was trying to, consume baseball games from around the league. And it's, again, it's players weekend. If you're trying to be like, Oh yeah, who else is fun? Like clue me into these hot young stars. Like what you had was in fact, the most alienating and highest bar for entry experience. Like if, if because it was players weekend and you thought that like, whatever the guy who had the, the, the peach and the tree for butchery on the back of his Jersey sounded funny mm -hmm. and you wanted to watch his team. You literally like couldn't tell what you were watching. It was like, yeah, you can't even read it. Yeah. It's like if, if you were like, I found that, that, that in addition to them, like looking bad or whatever, like in addition to them looking bad, I actually found that they was like, Oh, they do the opposite of what they should do. Like they make it harder for you to figure out, which team you're watching and who that is that just got that made that incredible play because you couldn't tell the jerseys and you couldn't read the names. I, you mentioned this on the, I think the most recent episode of the bandwagon, but you were talking about kind of um, teams all basically having the same jerseys already. Right. And like the, yes. some variation of red, white, and blue. And I'd almost rather see them just lean into that and just have like a whole weekend where every team is wearing the exact same Jersey and no one on the field knows who's on their own team. No, none of the fans know who's going on. They're like people running all over. You're tagging your own pitcher or something like that. Just like mass chaos, because that felt like kind of what we were on the verge on as it is. Yeah, they just, they didn't, they right. They split the difference poorly and it would just look like the umpires were on the away team. <laughs> well, it really makes you realize how many like baseball players have uh, like thick necks and like unremarkable chins and bone structure. Like they all really <laughs> just look the same and they all look like they're from like New Jersey. Yeah, it, um, it was a real, uh, my, my husband is also a baseball reporter, um, and he has a remarkable ability to 
<laughs> to recognize baseball players. And I had never felt the vast chasm between our knowledge <laughs> more than this weekend. I would be like, who is that? And he would be like, well, clearly that's, and I'm like, what the hell? Like, what are you even basing that on? Um, so shout out to him. Uh, <laughs> Several people asked me this weekend, you know, like why, why are they wearing these jerseys? Like, what is the, what is the meaning behind it? And I didn't, Usually when someone asks me a question about baseball that I don't know the answer to, I try to at least appear like I know the answer to maintain a facade of some sort of like I do this professionally. And with this, I was just like, I got nothing. You know, right. there's nothing there. Somebody thought these looked good, but in fact, they do not. And and ironically, didn't ask any of the players because they apparently all hated it too. Yeah. <laughs> I to hate it. I am bummed I didn't I didn't get out to any stadium, so I didn't get to ask anybody. Uh, but I will <laughs> I will do that and report back because they definitely I'm surprised that we there was such unanimous loathing so quickly that I'm surprised that it's Monday morning and we haven't yet gotten like a who is to blame. Like yeah. someone, someone should be reporting that out right now. Like a TikTok of how this went down. Yeah. I think yeah. someone should write the pro uniform take. I, I actually I, didn't like yeah. being able to tell the players apart. Let's cut the other direction. I, that's what I mean. I wish I could. Like I, they asked me about it in fan, not a fan in the episode we taped this morning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, guys, it's going to, it's like, I was like, look, we're talking Monday morning. This is going to air Wednesday Everyone will have made every possible, like, yes, they look like stormtroopers. They look like Oreos. They look like all the black and white things. Like, everyone has made every possible joke. Nobody likes these uniforms. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, Hannah, we stole more time of yours than we had initially asked for. And we're very appreciative of you coming on. Um, Do you want to plug anything upcoming other than the next episode of The Bandwagon? Let people know where they can find your stuff online, that kind of thing? Uh, sure. So watch the bandwagon every Wednesdays. Uh, it comes out at noon. We, we take incredible pains to make it come out every Wednesday at noon. I was, <laughs> I was on vacation, uh, until Monday and we had a red eye flight back. Um, and I wrote the script on the red eye flight back instead of sleeping. And then we, and then cause it was going to be a Tuesday morning and we had to hurry. So I went right to the studio after landing at six 30 in the morning to film an episode. <laughs> that it can come out at the normal time. I don't know why. My point is that it comes out at noon every Saturday and you can you can set your clocks by that. We're, we are, we are <laughs> overstressing how important that is. <laughs> you set an incredibly high bar for this now. If it ever comes out at like Wednesday at 2 p.m., I, I, there's going to be hell to raise. Um, so yeah, definitely watch the bandwagon. You can follow me on Twitter at Hannah R. Kaiser, K-E-Y-S-E-R. Um, what am I working on writing right now? I don't know. I'm trying to lay low until the playoffs, but uh, hopefully writing something on my my favorite Giants player soon. So look for that. Thank you so much, Hannah. Go watch the bandwagon. It's really good. Go read Hannah's stuff. It's really good. Hannah, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was so much fun. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way And I'd have never been aware But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again 
Thank you again to Hannah Kaiser. Alex, that was a really fun chat. We always say that we're going to have more guests, and then we don't talk about it for six weeks. And then in the three days leading up to recording a podcast, we're like, we should have a guest. Yeah, and somehow we always manage to pull it off, and we have a really enjoyable time every time. And that's pretty much exclusively due to the guests that we have on and and not anything that we're bringing to the table. Yeah, we're like, uh, so, um, uh, uh, so, explain to me what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Verbally describe to me the videos you put out every week. (laughs) Seriously, though, her videos are really good. So if you're still listening this late in the podcast, it means you are devoted to the content that we create. And as content creators ourselves, we can vouch for how great her videos are. So go check those out. They're less than 10 minutes mostly. And they happen every Wednesday at noon Eastern, as she said. Um, All right, let's do three up, three down real quick. And we'll get out of here. Ready? I'm ready. All right, down for me this week. Mike Trout tying Derek Jeter in war. If you'll remember, I think this was just last week, baby, that I had a spicy take about how Mike Trout is more important to the history of the game than Derek Jeter. And I wonder what Phil Mushnick would have to say about that. Um, because I'm insulting an actually liked New York Yankees baseball player as opposed to uh, Gary Sanchez. Um, number two, Joe Panic's babyface, parentheses, he looks like he should be in a pop-punk band. Joe Panic is like actually the player that we have talked about thinking about the least, so I have to unfortunately boot him off of my list. And number three, uh, Mickey Calloway, quote, 85% of our decisions go against analytics. I'm taking that off so that I don't have to think about how stupid that quote was anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we get it. We get it, Mickey. We know. We can see that with our own eyes. <laughs> yes, yeah, we didn't need to hear it from you. All right, what's coming off yours? All right, off my list. Uh, the game-length standoff that happened in the minors like a couple weeks ago. Just oh, the uh, Anthem one? Yes, the uh, the Anthem standoff. I... It's, again, one of those things that you think about for about two seconds in the moment. And you're like, wow, you're like, what that's a, stupid. <laughs> what, a, what a weird sport. What a weird thing that we derive <laughs> a strange amount of enjoyment out of. So There's uh, a lot of meta conversation going on in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's not going to end here either. We've got some, I think we've got some more coming up. Um, next off my list from a, a while back is the all-female broadcast booth made up of Melanie Newman and Susie Cool, who uh, who called the Salem Red Sox game back in April. And uh, and I, this is less to say that I am not thinking about them or the concept of female broadcasters, but the fact that baseball gives... I've been thinking a lot about broadcasters lately and the... Uh, sheer lack of diversity in there. So so maybe I am still thinking about them, but it's certainly in a in a very different context. Uh last off my list, Zach Grunke quotes, because he's now officially a Chris and Astro and I I I can't like him anymore. I'm sorry. We need a we're going for a division this year and I can't root for him. It's are it's you? tough. It's tough, but uh, are we? We're like seven games out. We got a month to play. Congratulations on your contract with the A's for the rest of the season. We <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I'm just kidding. We there's so much talk about fandom and so you you're entitled to say use the possessive about the A's. You're part of it. You're part of the part of the wave. Hell yeah. Um your point about Zach Granke and how he's a christened Astro and how you're not allowed to root for him anymore leads perfectly into my first up this week, Alex. It is Justin Verlander versus the media. 
Tell me about it. If you haven't been following, uh, there was the, a whole big old snafu last week with Justin Verlander apparently saying, telling the uh, Houston operations team that he did not want to talk to uh, a specific Detroit Free Press reporter who was going to be in the clubhouse because the Astros were uh, playing the Tigers. And apparently they have, uh, you know, like a checkered history about disagreeing about what should be written or certain columns that this guy has written. His name's Anthony Fennick. Verlander tweeted rather cryptically that like the guy has covered him wrongly in the past and he has like bad journalistic ethics more or less. Um, and so Verlander requested that they not allow this reporter in or like not allow him in for like the first 30 minutes or whatever, like delay his entry, which is super weird and also a violation of the collective bargaining agreement. So it was a big, it was like a big blowout thing on Twitter where people all had takes about it. Um, and then Deadspin did a little write up of it. And, uh, and it turns out that according to the Detroit free press, the publication that Anthony Fennick works for, the relationship began to deteriorate when Fennick joined a conversation Verlander was having with Al Kaline in the Tigers clubhouse at Comerica Park. Fennick had just finished an interview with Verlander a few minutes prior, and Kaline's name had come up. Fennick began talking to the two men. During the conversation, which was casual in nature, Verlander talked about his experiences traveling to Tennessee and watching the solar eclipse on August 21st. Fennick posted two tweets about the exchange saying, Justin Verlander watched the solar eclipse from the path of totality. Quote, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, he said. And Verlander, an admitted astronomy enthusiast, traveled to Nashville to watch the eclipse in its fullest totality, he said. That was the checkered history between Verlander and Fennec. Fennec tweeted out about Verlander seeing a solar eclipse, and Verlander thought that that was off the record, that he didn't want that to be tweeted or written about. And that's why Justin Verlander wanted to keep him out of the Houston Astros clubhouse several years later. This is like a really big topic that in a normal week we would have spent like a 20-minute segment on. So I don't want to drag it out even longer than I've already than I already feel like I've dragged it out by just reading this long out uh pull-out quote from this Detroit Free Press article. But Alex, what the fuck, dude? What is this? What is this story? I I have no idea. And I <laughs> Well, I saw it crop up and it was like one of those things where I had to work backwards because like I had just missed the the first part of the story. So like all of a sudden I'm seeing stuff about how like the these the Detroit Free Press and and the Astros are like putting out statements about what happened and I was like, "Oh shit, is this like another like, like Jason, we respect Jason the Vargas, First Amendment? like Mickey Calloway uh, yeah. sort of thing, like what the hell happened?" Um and while this is of a lesser degree than that, it's still an absolute transgression on the rights, honestly, of the reporter just trying to Literally. cover a baseball game. Yeah. I just don't, I don't get it. And we're not going to, you know, so many like people who actually know and care more about uh, like media stories and ethics and law and that kind of shit have already had better conversations about it than we would have. So uh, I'm just going to say, let's move on. What's your number one? Last week, the one and only senator and presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders played baseball at the Field of Dreams in Iowa. And, and nice work by you not saying the Field of Dreams field. We went over that a couple of weeks field. ago, that how redundant that is. 
um, yeah, so he and I I don't even really know the context of why he was playing there. I just saw the, you know, 40 second video that was tweeted out by the hill or whatever. But um he he doesn't look very good. I'm not gonna lie. Like Whoa. his his stance is, is not great. Like his like neither of his neither of his feet are planted. Like he's almost do like happy Gilmoreing it, you know? Um he I, I'd this like is to an see, unbelievable take by you. I would like to see him maybe load a little bit more because he flies way open, which is why he just kind of like rolled, rolled over, over on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So his 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 form on the mound was a little bit better. Um, he got a there was a hard out that was hit um, off of him, but uh, but you know he looked pretty good with the underhand. That's but you know it, I've baby. seen I've seen him shooting hoops and he like actually looks pretty good there. So yeah, uh, he does. so maybe basketball is his real calling. I have two things to say to this. Number one, uh, a few weeks back, uh, I added to my three up three down power ranking list. Um, the idea of online swing doctors and you're basically just doing that to Bernie Sanders right now on our podcast. So um, shout out to you for paying close attention to what I'm thinking about. And uh, number two, I very much appreciate that you decided to cut the other direction, go against the grain on this a little bit and be like, Bernie, do better because I was ready to just have a little love fest for that video because it's amazing and uh, I'm I'm happy that we're not just two 23-year-old white guys with leftist politics fawning over Bernie Sanders on a podcast that they created in college. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love the guy. But if you're going to go out and play on the freaking field of dreams, like at least take some BP beforehand so you look like yeah. you know what you're doing. Kevin Bernie, Costner acquitted himself well, Bernie. Do better <laughs> next time, you fucking nerd. Uh, all right. What's next up on your list? Great work out of you. Okay, next up on my list. Um, slightly more seriously, the Venezuelan Winter Leagues and the, uh, we're, we're really going politics, like literal the hill politics this week. But um, there was an executive order banning Americans from doing business with the Venezuelan government um, since there's been a lot of political strife between the United States and Venezuela over the last, I guess, year or so. Um, and so... It has like a weirdly applicable um, or it has like a weirdly apt application in baseball in that there's a lot of Venezuelan players who play in MLB and they play in the the winter leagues um, during the baseball offseason. You see this with a lot of countries, um, you know, like a guy like Yasiel Puig is really famous for his work in the Cuban leagues and that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, the Dominican leagues and that kind of thing. you know, legend, legendary Dominican baseball players talking about how they actually prefer to just go home and play in the Dominican Winter Leagues. So it's not really much of a like a take that I have on this, you know, because it's kind of like a much larger and much more serious political story. But it's a sort of a weird line that MLB now has to tiptoe in that there's there are baseball players who gain value from this, both. Um, you know, personal and that they get to go to where they're from every winter and do the thing that they love, play baseball. And also just that, like, they get to become better in the offseason and they get to play a slightly different style of baseball game, which trains them in a slightly different way, which a lot of these guys, like, um, you know, the LA Times had a write-up about the Angels players who play in the Venezuelan Winter League, uh, Luis Renjifo and Jose Suarez. Um, and, you know, MLB is kind of in this, like, weird 
position and I don't really even know what the right answer for them to do is, you know? Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that and trying to like hammer that out in my head and like see how this unfolds. I'm hoping that like the actual political strife between our two countries can be um, nailed out. And so that baseball doesn't have to be kind of like caught in the middle of this. Uh, that would be a more beneficial outcome for everyone involved and all of these players who want to play in the Venezuelan winter leagues. But I'm really hoping that like this doesn't become a whole thing where like players can't go do what they want to do in the off season because of like the shitty nature of international politics in our hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. Well put. Um, I think it just feels a little hypocritical to me, this being something that major league baseball would dive into without acknowledging how corrupt and messed up their whole international baseball system is. Um, and it's something that benefits them. So I don't see them um, necessarily addressing it anytime soon, but you have the sanctioned exploitation of like kids as young as 13 and 14, like, sometimes even younger. So like, if you if you care about what's happening with baseball overseas, like that should be priority number one, Rob. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so there's a long laundry list of things that could and should be higher on the priority list than like the certain things that are on the priority list, like um, replay review and uh, like the minute seconds that you might be able to shave off of total game time. But um, at the risk of devolving back into the same stuff that we do every week. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, what's uh, what's number two on your list? Number two on my list is the one and only AJ Puck, who made his Major League debut this past week for the Oakland A's. And watching him, you know, we were having the conversation uh, with Hannah about fandom and the amount of time that you uh, devote to it. And sometimes you can feel very scorned by your team and you can feel very let down. But the watching... AJ Puck come up and pitch and throw a hundred miles per hour in a baseball game reminded me of like those little moments of payoff where you like follow a player for years and years and you just hope and pray and you, and you ride through the injuries and you just, and you just want to see uh, this talent come to life on the field in front of you. And when it actually does, when it actually like hits the sweet spot, it feels very, very good as a fan. You feel very vindicated for <laughs> devoting hours and hours of your life to just diving into this sport, this the the skills of this one person who you don't know. Protect him, man. Protect at him costs. at all costs. <laughs> baseball gods, baseball god, plural, singular, field of dreams, the ghosts out in the, the cornfields, whatever you're doing now, please move AJ Puck's elbow and shoulder and any other part of his body that he needs to throw a baseball at all costs. That's my take. <laughs> That's a good take. Okay, my final thing. The Red Sox and the Royals played a 12-minute baseball game. You probably got a push notification about this from your chosen sports app on your phone, whether that's the MLB at Bad app or Yahoo Sports or whatever it might be. You know, it was actually a continue not to be a reply guy, but it was actually a continuation of a game that had been suspended earlier in the year and they gathered um, in Fenway Park. The Royals flew there on their off day um, to play the rest of a tie baseball game in the 10th inning and the Red Sox ended up winning it in the bottom of the 10th um, at their first opportunity. So it ended up only running 12 minutes. So they opened up all of Fenway Park 
for 12 minutes. Um, and the more interesting part of this to me is obviously a little bit about, I, I mentioned something that Hannah wrote about it, but um, the more interesting part is that they made tickets free for everyone under 18. They made uh, hot do- all hot dogs $1. Um, all of the concessions were greatly discounted. There were family tickets that you could get at a lower price. Um, and it's ba- it was basically like baseball game. And you could also buy a general admission ticket and sit anywhere in Fenway Park if it was open. Um, so it was basically like fan experience nirvana for what you and I talk about on this podcast, right? Yes, yes. And I was like, oh my God, it's like a minor league game, except at the at the oldest or the second oldest baseball park that we have in this entire country. One of the most storied places in the United States of America. It's based, they're basically treating it like a Trenton Thunder game. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Is this actually a good thing? Yeah. Alex, for- should, we, should we be given a round of applause for John Henry? <laughs> I mean, for 12 minutes, a baseball team pretended that they actually care about the fans. So, uh, so that's fun. That's, uh, that's, that's cool. It's a win. Um, friend of the podcast, Austin Zimmerman, uh, just DM'd, actually just a couple minutes before we started talking about this, just DM'd us to Jessica Kleinschmidt, who's a baseball analyst for NBC Sports, and she said that the A's, the Oakland Athletics, who I think you're familiar with. Um, they announced that kids 12 and under can attend every September September regular season home game for free. And for every regularly priced individual ticket purchased, adults can receive two additional kids tickets. So um, that's awesome. Like this is the kind of thing that every single baseball team should be required to try or required to participate in. Um, and it's the kind of thing where like you watch it happen and you watch it unfold with the Red Sox and you watch how successful it is. And obviously it's uh, extenuating circumstances for the, for the reasons that I tried to explain the situation earlier. But if the A's, and this is Austin's take that I'm going to kind of steal a little bit and, um, and broadcast to the listener. But if the A's, the A's, the team that had Moneyball written about it, I don't know if you've ever heard of it and if we've ever talked about it on this podcast, but if the A's can afford to allow everyone 12 and under and to have discounted tickets for families, et cetera, et cetera. All these ticket programs that they've come up with over the years that you've, in which you partook, all of those different programs, if the A's can afford to do it, yet still play, still pay the player salaries that they committed to before they committed to this ticket program, well, then it kind of sounds a little bit like every team can afford to pay player salaries and ticket sales have nothing to do with it, right? Right? Yes. Thanks yes. for the take, Austin. I appreciate it. I hope you're listening and I hope your hip is feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have nothing more to add except for teams should take a cue from this and make baseball games more affordable to everyone, not just kids. Just just do it and pay players while you're at it. Do right by your fans. Okay, Alex, your final thing for this week. All right, last on my list, I told you there was something existential coming. And lo and behold, we had to end the podcast with this. Nick Castellanos, who plays for the Chicago Cubs, was uh, was telling reporters, uh, I guess after a game a few days ago, uh, he said that he tells Joe Madden, happy opening day before every game. And so reporter uh, Rick Tarsitano, who uh, reports f- on the Cubs for uh, WGN News, asked Nick Castellanos, why do you wish Joe Madden a happy opening day every single day? And uh, and this was his response. 
Why is today not opening day? Just because it's, it's not opening day. <laughs> Prove to me that it's not. <laughs> well, your record. Well, that well, that's only if you believe your record. You know, it's kind of the mentality like, um, if what has happened is a memory, and what's going to happen is a thought, you're taking yourself out of right now. So in that case, every day is opening day. <laughs> Nick Castellanos, come on Tipping Pitches and talk about life and what it all means, you know? If what has happened is a memory and what's going to happen is a thought, you're taking yourself out of right now. That's like that's like a like a Tumblr post circa 2006 <laughs> that gets like 15,000 reblogs or like the kind of text re-blogs. that you can, you can <laughs> that you can put over like a like a really grainy image of like the sea or something like yes. that. Yeah. Or trees exactly, or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's coming from Nick Castellanos who before this moment, beautiful moment, by the way, thank you for for pulling this out and putting it in, in the podcast as you always do. You always find a little nugget that I would have never found. But the beautiful moment, the beautiful thing about Nick Castellanos is um, the only notable thing about him before this year was that he got traded. He was the only good Tigers player that they could trade, and he got traded to the Cubs. He was the only Tigers player. Shout out to Zach Cram for this fun fact. Ringer baseball writer Zach Cram. He was the only Tigers player who had more than 100 plate appearances this year who had an OPS plus of over 100. He was the only above average hitter for the entire Detroit Tigers organization. Well, maybe it's just because the Tigers are living in the past and he's living in the now, right? They All the Tigers were taking themselves out of right now, but Nick Castellanos does not see forward, does not see backward. He only sees today, and that day is opening day. So all those kudos losing to him. Games, all those games where they were so far behind and he, didn't, he could mentally check out of the game because they had no chance of coming back, he was just formulating his... his his Plato's Republic in his head, you know? Yeah. Maybe the Tigers really should buy into that more, you know? Like when people point out the fact that they've only won like 35 games this year, you'd be like, look, the past is no, a it's memory, opening day. man. It's no, not real. It's, a, it's opening day. How could we have only won 35 games if today is opening day? <laughs> <laughs> Nick Castellanos, we stand eternally for your extremely high thoughts. Sweet pie, sweet pie. You've had a landscape and a housekeeper. Alex, this was a really fun episode. Again, I can't say it enough. Thanks for thanks to Hannah Kaiser for joining um, and for talking about all the existentialism. My only regret is that she didn't get to comment on this Nick Castellanos thing. So maybe if she if she hears this, she will tweet out her takes on his existential nature. Yes, please. <laughs> um, if you like what you heard, please, it would be great if you could be kind enough to go rate and review us on iTunes or um, if there's something that you want to hear for next week someone who is trying to wrestle back the Nick Castellanos uh, existentialist title belt uh, we want to hear about it it's uh, tipping underscore pitches on twitter tipping pitches pod at gmail.com and uh, if you don't have any more fun player quotes to share Alex I think that's all I have for the listener this week yeah that's about it but uh, but send me some Bernie send me some Bernie Sanders scouting reports if you saw something different than I did. Maybe I just saw him on an off day and I'm willing to be proved wrong on this one. 
I saw 50 grade speed. So 50 grade speed. You're just okay. leaving that out. Sounds good. Bernie Sanders bringing back the stolen base. 45 U- plus future value on fan graphs. You heard it here. <laughs> universal healthcare and universal DH. That's the, that's the 2020 platform. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Oh